0: Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I am back. This is a back-to-back podcast. And some of you may wonder why we might go a month and a half without a podcast and then have two or three suddenly. The reason for that is that we have students two out of every three months and generally try to have podcasts at the end of the rotation. So we might go two months without a podcast. And in some cases where we're not able to have podcasts one month, it might even be three months. So back-to-back today. Jonathan, uh, yesterday we talked a little bit about excoriation, and today, Elliot, tell me what we're going to talk about, and then we'll do some brief introductions.
1: Um, yeah, so today we're going to talk about um, epilepsy, and specifically epilepsy associated with psychosis. It's a um, big topic, and I think the more, at least that I dove into it, the more confused I think I found myself. So, <laughs> so I would to talk about it. <laughs>
0: So we'll see where it goes then. All right, Jonathan,
2: briefly, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, so I'm Jonathan Kaiser, a student at Rocky Mountain University, physician assistant student, and this is my fourth rotation here at the State Hospital with Dr. Rowney.
1: Um, yeah, I'm Elliot, fourth year student from uh, Rocky Vista, uh, and this is my second four-week rotation here at the State Hospital, so happy to have been here and had the opportunity.
0: Great to have you here. I think we did a little bit more in-depth introduction for both of you yesterday. Talked a little bit about what direction you two are both headed. Uh, Won't do that today then. Um, Do tell me though, how you decided on this podcast. What what was it that led you this direction?
1: Um, I think for me, um, epilepsy and seizure disorders have always been something that I've been interested in, mainly because I I don't feel like I have a great grasp um, on the topic as a whole. And then I think just layering on top of that um, psychosis that we see in patients that have epilepsy um, and kind of how those two conditions overlap um, was something that was really interesting you know, for me to really dive into.
0: At the end of your dive, do you know seizures more, less, more questions tell me where you're at
1: yeah I think for me I probably have I probably have more questions because I think every time um, that I felt like I had a good gr- a good grasp on the topic and um, you know a clear layout that I felt like I could present on a podcast I you know would look at another paper or it would open up a question into well has somebody looked at this you know as far as like maybe doing surgical intervention or using like Gamma Knife, that type of thing. Um, and so that would open up you know a new set of articles to look at, and then more questions. And it just kind of went around and around. And so that's where we're at right now.
0: Let me uh, start off, normally we would start off by asking a couple of questions about shelf prep. There, there are a couple that did pop up in our review of our literature. They revolved around the diagnosis of brief psychotic disorder, which is less than one month. Um, Schizophreniform disorder one month to six months, and schizophrenia six months and longer. We saw that in some of the language with the the articles that we saw, because that has some meaning in terms of the duration of psychosis associated with seizures. So I'm going to start with what I think might be a pretty difficult question. Are seizures associated with psychosis? Do they cause psychosis? That's two questions. Yeah.
1: Um, at least, you know, from the articles that I read, I don't think we can say that. I think we know that people that have seizures or epilepsy, particularly if they have temporal lobe epilepsy, they're more prone to having psychoses or psychotic disturbances than, than the general population. Um, I think on a direct comparison, people that have epilepsy, um, compared to the general population, they're at a 1% increased risk for having psychoses or psychotic disturbances. But patients that have um, temporal lobe epilepsy compared to um, the population of patients that have epilepsy, they're actually at a 20% increased risk um, of having psychotic disturbances. So I think for me, that was something that was interesting. I don't I think that even answers the question as far as, you know, which one comes first, do they come together, or how are they associated? And I think that's kind of where the research is at, and the hope is that, um, you know, we can figure out maybe through studying these two, neuro, you know, neurologic, and, uh, neurologic conditions, you know, a better treatment for one or both.
0: That'd be nice, I think. There was an article, and this might be the time to bring this up. Talk to me about the overlap in systems that seem to be associated with both schizophrenia and with temporal lobe epilepsy that does seem to lead to psychosis.
1: Yeah, so um, with um, temporal lobe epilepsy, um, I think kind of what you're getting at is the association within the limbic system and where, like within temporal lobe epilepsy, you're gonna have, um, you're typically gonna see it with like hippocampal sclerosis, or um, I think another article showed that some people that have temporal lobe epilepsy, they'll have amygdala enlargement, and so within these regions of the brain, um, we're looking to see that those um, cause epilepsy, and then particularly, um, not only do they cause epilepsy, but they make this population more prone to having psychosis. And I think that's kind of what you're, what you're getting at.
0: What kind of research has been done looking at the overlap between that, that system and schizophrenia? I think we had one paper on that, right? Uh, Am I asking the I right question? I don't know if we had. I think that was the imaging paper that looked at how there's some overlap between some temporal lobe epilepsy. Oh, with so, the,
1: you're looking at like the functional MRI yeah. paper. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna have to pull that one up. Um, how,
0: how about if we skip that and say simply that there's some data that these systems overlap that that some some systemic analysis of schizophrenia might have some commonality with uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, and that it seemed like there's a lot of work left to be done on that. Yeah, I agree. Is that, is that reasonable? Yeah, I think that's okay. reasonable. I want to follow up um, on this question that we have about the association between um, increased rates of psychosis in patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. But I think it's probably worthwhile to define some terms before we go there. Yeah. I think there are a handful of terms that define, that define the relationship between an epileptic event and psychosis. Do you want to go through those and what the timelines are on those?
1: Yeah. So um, I think for, you know, when we're talking about epilepsy and um, psychoses, the way that it's been broken down um, is that you can have ictal, post-ictal, and interictal psychoses. Um, And the operational criteria that is the most reliable and the most used actually was created in 1988 by Toon and Legsdale. Um, And so that criteria is specifically looking at post-ictal psychosis. A patient has to have onset of confusion or psychosis within one week of a return to their apparent normal mental function following a seizure. Um, The duration of the psychosis lasts one day to three months typically. And the mental state is characterized by um, delusions or hallucinations in a clear consciousness. And then they have to not have um, any abnormal mental state secondary to anticonvulsant toxicity, um, a previous history of interictal psychoses, and then EEG evidence of like status epilepticus or drug intoxication. Those would make it, if they have any of those factors, then you can't call it postictal psychoses. Um, And one of the terms I mentioned in there was interictal psychoses. And I think kind of Dr. Roundy and I, what we talked about was there was a paper that was talking about perictal psychoses instead of interictal or um, postictal. Yeah. Yeah. Interictal, ictal ictal, or postictal psychoses. And so I think with perictal psychoses, it's did the psychoses start and then they had a seizure or with the ictal psychosis, they're seizing and then psychotic um, simultaneously. And the only way you're gonna know that is if you're doing an EEG while they're actively seizing and psycho- psychotic. And so I don't it's hard see to how that. that would truly be possible to like extrapolate out. So I think periictal psychosis from the stuff that I saw was the more accepted term. So it was psychosis around the time of a seizure.
0: Did you come across anything that talked about Clustering of seizures associated with either uh, periictal, interictal, postictal psychosis, or temporal lobe epilepsy.
1: Um, yeah, there was. I think it was that Kanemoto paper again that came up, or that they talked about the seizure clusters um, and how prone people were after having a seizure cluster, how prone they were to having um, postictal psychosis. I think that's the paper you're talking about. Um, and I think that in that paper, um, one of the things they looked at was that I think they had 30 patients that they diagnosed with postictal psychoses, um, and then they had, they were comparing that to 30 patients that had, um, interictal psychosis.
0: Yeah, there was, po- there was interictal and perictal in that paper yeah. and, and no, no psychosis associated yeah. with seizures. Yep. So I think was the other group. Yeah. Yep.
1: And I think the thing that was most interesting to me in that paper was that um, the patients that had postictal psychoses, um, they were more prone to being aggressive following their seizure episode. And I think that they had 13 of the 57 episodes of their psychoses that they witnessed increased aggression. That was not the case in that. periectal group, yeah. or the group that was um, had never had psychosis.
0: To me, I think the, the very difficult part of this, and so, so I just want to reiterate, this gets to the challenge of associating an actual seizure event with psychosis. And, and I, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm under the impression that when I've worked with patients who have um, psychosis associated with seizures... I'm under the impression that we don't always see all of the seizures and that uh, sometimes as we are in a cluster, um, we might see psychosis escalate early in the cluster without having identified a seizure yet. Mm-hmm. And so so I think this is very difficult, and I, and I think even the, the difference between periectal and interictal psychosis can be very challenging if you're working under the assumption that you might not be able to see the seizures. And, and I, I think there's... Um, because the seizures can all generalize, you see some, and I also think there are some seizures that might not be easily observable. I think mm-hmm. there was also some data that you talked to me about regarding absence seizures being associated with, this, uh, with, with um, seizure-related psychosis.
1: Yeah, and I think that it was um, even more so than absence is that pa- pa- patients could have like a focal seizure and they might have an automatism, and that is the only true evidence that they're seizing. And if you don't notice what that automatism is, it could be as simple as them sitting there and absentmindedly smacking their lips, and that could be the seizure. And if you're, if you don't have them on twenty-four hour EEG, and you know, in a clinical setting where you can monitor that, um, you're not, they're not going to remember it, and you're not going to catch it. And so then, if they have a psychotic event three days later and are brought in by family, the focus is probably gonna be on, I think a couple of the papers talked on this, this was that the focus is then on the psychosis, and not on the epilepsy or the seizure that we think induced the psychotic event. And so yeah. it gets very muddled. And so I think um, one of the things a lot of the papers touched on that we read was that these patients, they can be diagnosed late with epilepsy or they'll be diagnosed, you know, kind of unknowingly with schizophrenia and treated for that. And I think the interesting thing is that if you're then treating them with an antipsychotic, we know that antipsychotics lower your seizure threshold, so you could be managing the psychosis but making their seizures worse, Mm -hmm. and then how is that affecting their overall psychosis?
0: I think I have one more thing to say about this, and that is that the episodic nature of the psychosis is unusual. I don't think we see that very often and and, and so I, I do think that it has some relationship to seizures. I I, I know we have data that suggests that they're comorbid mm-hmm. uh, at least, um, but I, I think I lean towards the idea that because we don't tend to see uh, periodic psychosis, we tend to see more durable psychosis mm-hmm. and and the episodic psychosis of Uh, associated with seizures also seems to resolve quite often, generally seems to resolve.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's fair, and I think that that's, at least in my mind, I think that's one of the things that make having longitudinal, you know, care and follow-up within mental health, I think that makes it important, and oftentimes that's hard because of the constraints of the healthcare system. And so if you don't have kind of longitudinal follow-up, the ability to see this, kind of waxing and waning of seizures and psychosis, it can be really oh, difficult to then appropriately treat.
0: So let me ask uh, another question. What if, what if treating the seizures makes the psychosis worse? So, so I'm gonna step back just a second, right? This is the question that's coming into play now. We've talked about this being episodic. We've talked about peri uh, psychosis associated with clearly identified seizure activity. We've talked about interictal psychosis, not so clearly identified with seizure activity. And now um, we're going to talk about something called forced normalization. So when we, when we send somebody to have video EEG, or even any EEG, we tend to take away the antipsychotic medication and we increase the risk, or not just the antipsychotic medication, but also the anti-epileptic medication. We increase the risk of seizure activity. Um, But we don't, you didn't find, I don't think I looked hard enough for this, but you didn't find any papers that said, while we were doing video EEG, we saw a spike, and then within a few hours, we saw fluorid psychosis. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I didn't see anything along those lines. And I think, um, you know, the topic, like when we're talking about forced...
0: Define forced normalization for us before yeah. we talk about so it too much. so when we talk <laughs> about forced normalization,
1: what that is, is it's a patient that has, you know, they have epilepsy or a seizure disorder, and their EEG is completely normal, but they're, you know, frankly, psychotic. Um, and so you have this patient with known epilepsy, known history of seizures, they have a normal EEG, and then they have this psychosis. And so we call that forced normalization. And oftentimes, um, I think that came into play with, we were giving patients um, anti-epileptic you know, epileptic drugs, we were controlling their seizures, and then they were becoming, or we were seeing this cohort of patients that would become more psychotic, um, which I think is a little bit confusing, right? Because you think if they have epilepsy with psychosis, if we control this, and you're thinking it from a seizure standpoint, that's causing the the psychosis. If you control the seizures, the psychosis shouldn't shouldn't come back or shouldn't worsen. And these patients would have seizure control, normal EEGs showing we were managing from a neurologic standpoint the seizures, but now they're psychotic. Um, Or more psychotic. Or more psychotic.
0: Yeah. I I just want to make sure I, I understood this part. The most of the articles we look at generally are summaries of case reviews. There's there are a handful of case series. I think the article that you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. one that I can't find now that uh, I've read a couple of times in the past. but the the case series are fairly limited and even in these small case series or small numbers of patients that are described in the literature, when they talk about forced normalization, the same paper may have another cadre in the same group that doesn't follow the forced normalization um, picture that you just Mm -hmm. described. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's what, you know, makes this topic both fascinating, frustrating, um, and an area that I think we, you know, hopefully will explore more, um, you know, through f- future research and interventions. I think, um, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, at least when I was approaching this originally, it was, you know, I thought about seizures as one entity and then psychosis as a completely different entity, and then, you know, Doing this research for this podcast definitely shows there's a lot of blurring and overlap which doesn't doesn't make it any easier because I think one of the other interesting things was when we think about treating psychosis those you know antipsychotic drugs we have lowering seizure threshold but then if you're treating seizures the anti-seizure drugs actually increase the risk of psychosis and so How do you balance treating somebody that has both disorders with meds that make the opposite condition worse?
0: I want to follow up on that just a little bit. Treatment of this condition seems to be associated with a handful of options. Obviously, one of those is oral medications. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about devices in, in just a moment. You said that anti-epilep- antiepileptics can sometimes increase psychosis. There are a handful that are associated with this more strongly than others. Do you want to just kind of throw those out there? I think those were in one of the articles that, yeah. that we had.
1: Um, so typically the drugs, the antiepileptics that are associated with, you know, worsening um, psychosis are going to be um, um A derivative of that is um, brevo teracetam and then um is another one and then um carbamazepine um was another one that was mentioned in that article as well and then um if we think on the other side of the coin with antipsychotics and which ones are known for lowering the seizure threshold um then i think the ones that do it most often were um Olanzapine, risperidone, um, Haldol, and then um, flufenazine. So then, like ziprasidone. I,
0: I would also add that there's a boxed warning for clozapine and yes. epilepsy uh, and seizures. Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, and then I think quetiapine actually also was mentioned in there too, um, is lowering the th- seizure threshold. But like your newer, if you're thinking of it as newer antipsychotics such as your ziprasidone, aripiprazole. Um, those medications weren't noted to actually lower the seizure threshold in a statistically significant manner. But I don't think, I think if you're thinking about anecdotal evidence and what you see in clinical practice, I think some people probably would say that giving those meds maybe made some patients that were prone to seizures, you know, they would actually develop seizures on those medications.
0: Or, or their seizure threshold was already vulnerable and mm-hmm. crossed the threshold with those seizures. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be a, another way of saying that. Mm-hmm. Too. Uh, so, oral antiepileptics. Um, there are specific medications with indications for seizures that both generalize and seizures uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. Are there are there specifically FDA approved medications for TLE?
1: I don't. Th- I don't know. I didn't look. Exactly to see if there was FDA approved medications for TLE, um, I, so I can't answer that question. Um,
0: then let's let's go ahead and shift gears. Mm-hmm. I think Jonathan might be madly looking that up right now. I know. <laughs> so I'm interested I wanna, to see what he finds. I want to shift gears. I have come across some data that uh, vagal nerve stimulators might be more helpful for. Um, seizure-related psychosis. I'll just group them all together with that. Um, Talk to me about VNS devices. And I think there's some interesting stuff in here.
1: Yeah. So again, I think, you know, this is all, all this evidence that says VNS devices, um, you know, may be helpful with controlling seizures in patients that have psychosis. You know, it's all based off of, um, case study, so VNS devices, they're not FDA approved for this, but you can use it as an adjunctive measure. Um, they, they are approved
0: for epilepsy. Yes, but not, but not f- epilepsy for with psychosis. psychosis. Yeah, it doesn't have that specific indication. Yes. Okay. Um,
1: you know, so with a vagal nerve stimulator, um, it's going to be an implanted device, and it's FDA approved to be implanted actually on the left side only. Um
0: so left, so the patient's left the of... patient's left. So and the, it sits right in a pouch just uh, kind of below the clavicle, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And, and and the other question that you might see on your shelf exam is they do affect which nerve?
1: The, the recurrent, recurrent laryngeal. Well, there, there you go. go. Nice. Yes. So, um, you know, with these electrodes, they're implanted on the left side, um, specifically at the left um, cervical um, vagal trunk. And so the electrodes are implanted superior to the clavicle but the battery pack is going to sit subcutaneously um, inferior to the clavicle and you're going to titrate once this is placed they're going to make sure while the patient's under anesthesia that it works and that doesn't cause them to have bradycardia or an arrhythmia Um, and then once you know the device has been implanted you're going to titrate up um, the stimulation that you're giving to the vagal nerve and so the thought, I think, with this is that you're stimulating the vagal nerve and through releasing, you know neuromodulatory um, neurotransmitters that it has some impact. We don't know exactly what impact it is on reducing the psychoses um, as well as the seizure events. And I think you know a lot of the case studies in that paper, the patients at two years I want to say the majority of them, um, were close to seizure free, and all of them, I think there was eight or nine patients. um, They had no um, psychoses at the two-year mark.
0: If I recall correctly, they also had um, they also had, in many cases, oral anti-epileptics still on board. Mm -hmm. Maybe the doses came down. I don't know the answer. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So you know, I think. With the VNS device, it's an interesting you know it's an interesting solution to this problem. Um, but again, this paper on the eight patients or nine patients that they treated, they had complete resolution of their psychoses. That's not to say that that's what's going to happen um, for everyone, and I think a lot of these patients they had um, if I recall, they had focal um, epilepsy where it was initiated where their seizure events were in one hemisphere of the brain. And so, you know, if you have somebody that has bitemporal epilepsy, that's not necessarily going to be the solution um, or the magic bullet that's going to cure them.
0: There was some interesting uh, things that you were telling me about the difference between right-sided VNS and left-sided VNS. Do you want to tackle that, or should we? is that worth adding here?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's an interesting topic. I think... um, in one of the papers that I was looking at, um, you know the VNS device it's FDA approved to be implanted on the left side, um, and so you may be asking why can't you implant it on the right? Because obviously, they have a right and the left vagus nerve, and the reason you know that they have it approved on the w- left versus the right is because of the concern if you implant the, the device on the right, um, your vagus nerve it does come down and it stimulates um, the SA node. And so the concern would be if you were um, you know, providing electrical current through uh, the vagus nerve to stimulate, and it went distally instead of proximally up the vagus nerve, um, depending on where the electrodes were implanted, that you would be slowing the heart and could put somebody into an arrhythmia. Um, and in this one study, it was with pediatric patients, and they had drug-resistant epilepsy. They had... Place the VNS device on the left side, it had gotten infected, and so that left them with one option that when you have a, you know, infected, implanted device, you have to remove it to clear the infection, and so the decision was made um, to try implanting the VNS device on the right side, and what they found was that when they implanted the device on these three patients on the right side, they actually um, also had um, cessation of their seizure activity, and there was no adverse events um, from a cardiac standpoint. So kind of the point with this, um, you know, case study was, well, is there truly that big of a risk to implanting the device on the right side? And then the other thing they brought up was if somebody has right-sided, they have a right-sided focal epilepsy, then... would it be more beneficial and we have, would we have better results with VNS, um, you know, VNS devices reducing seizure out, or seizure events if, you know, somebody that had right-sided focal epilepsy, we placed the implant on the right side?
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, what about, I, I know surgery, we looked at surgery, I think capsulotomy mm-hmm. is one of the options that has been looked at. Tell me about the data on capsulotomy.
1: Um, yeah, so I think you know the most interesting thing with surgery um, and something that I didn't know was that um, with temporal resection for psychosis, one of the known um, side effects that you have to go over with a patient when you're consenting them is the risk for um, de novo, essentially post-operative, post-dictal psychosis as a potential adverse outcome, Um, and in one of the papers that I looked at, it was a case study, and it was evaluating 282 sequential patients that underwent temporal resection, Um, and three of those 282 patients, they actually ended up developing um, post-operative, post-ictal psychoses, Um, and one of the things, or the commonalities that they found was that um, these patients that developed post-operative, post-hictal psychoses was that they had contralateral um, epileptogenesis is kind of how they phrased it. So
0: the... So multifocal?
1: Yeah, so they think that they ended up with multifocal um, seizures because they had a seizure... I think all three patients, they had a seizure-free period and then they had resected the right temporal region and following that, the patients then developed left-sided um, hippocampal um, foci for initiating their seizures, and then they um, went into psychosis. So their kind of point for future research and looking into this was, are patients with a bitemporal um, foci for their seizures? Are they more prone to developing post-operative psychosis? And I think just kind of going back to um, epilepsy and post-ictal psychosis in general, um, the research and from the papers we looked at was that patients that did indeed not have a focal epilepsy, but they had bitemporal epilepsy, they were more prone even than the general population of patients that has temporal epilepsy to having psychosis. Um,
0: Jonathan, did you find the question that, was, that came up earlier? Did you see an answer for that?
2: I did find some medications, but I'm not sure if they're the ones we were looking for. I think carbamazepine was one of them, but there's a a certain other number here. Carbamazepine
0: is what I was able to find. So maybe Dilantin as well, maybe Depakote. There, there are a number listed here, gabapentin, topiramate. I don't know if these are all FDA approved. Um, yeah, so we'll look at that more later. Yeah. Maybe, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, put that in the information about the podcast. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is another strategy for treating uh, seizure-related psychosis and that is to give an antipsychotic medication if psychosis emerges. Tell me a little bit about the data you came across for that.
1: Um, as far as what medications we would like to give? So I think for I, me, I, For
0: those of you watching on podcast, I shrugged.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things, you know, if psychosis emerged, then the data um, and the consensus was that you treat the psychosis acutely. Um, and one of the go-to drugs, at least in all, most of the case reports I saw, was actually olanzapine. Um, even though it can... Theoretically, lower the seizure threshold. The thought was, you're going to be giving, and most antipsychotics they lower the seizure threshold. But in one of the pharmacologic reviews on treating this condition in particular, um, they, you know, were under the. Their point was, in somebody that has epilepsy and psychosis, you treat the psychosis that's acute, and then you still have them on an anti-seizure drug, and so you shouldn't theoretically be lowering. The seizure threshold, and not okay. compensating for it because I think olanzapine lowers the seizure threshold by zero point three percent, so it's not remarkable. How do how do you, how do they come up with that? I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> that was just what they quoted. So I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with their. It was a hmm. review article, I'm gonna and I'm going to go with that. <laughs> um, but you know, the idea was the seizure threshold with an antipsychotic. How much you're lowering it isn't to the detriment of the patient. The psychosis is worse, and so the benefit is to treat that psychosis, still have them on an anti-epileptic drug.
0: You put together a number of articles looking at uh, high oxidative states associated with temporal lobe epilepsy. I don't think there was a link between those high oxidative states and uh, seizure-related psychosis, but I, I wanted to check that, and then I also wanted you to talk a little bit about that information you came across.
1: Um, yeah, so with uh, high oxidative states, one of the things they were looking at, and they think um, they think when somebody has a seizure, because you're releasing, um, you know, an excess amount of catecholamines, and the um, within the brain you go into this kind of hypermetabolic state when you have a seizure, that it creates a um, release of reactive oxygen species. And so we think that, or not that we think, but we know that reactive oxygen species cause a lot of damage. And so one of the articles it was talking about how um, is it, with somebody that develops epilepsy, is it the frequency of seizures that then through creating you know, or having their brain inundated with reactive oxygen species that then creates a lesion. So with temporal lobe epilepsy, um, one of the most common causes of temporal lobe epilepsy is um, secondary dysclerosis of the hippocampus. Like That's one of the most common causes of um, TLE. And so they're wondering, is that lesion caused by the reactive oxygen species? And they kind of looked at, um, I think it was superoxide dismutase was one of the reactive oxygen species. And so then the next step was would treating somebody with you know, an antioxidant in conjunction to an antiepileptic, would that make a difference? And there wasn't, in a human model, there's nothing that's been researched, but in some animal models, I think they were using rat models and in inducing seizures, um, they found that adding on um, an antioxidant. Made a little bit of a difference, but I don't think it was statistically significant at this point. So I think that's kind of one of those next next fields is with inflammation, chronic inflammation in the brain secondary to um, so you know I'm recurrent sure. episodes of seizures. Are you creating these this overload of reactive oxygen species that then creates a lesion in the brain? And is there a way to effectively combat that?
0: Was there ever a phrase um, "kindling" used associated with what you read?
1: Yeah. So that was in that article with the um, you know superoxide dismutase, and they also looked at um, nitrogenous like reactive nitrogen species as well um, is causing kind of that damaging, but the kindling piece, like it was mentioned, but i 'll let you
0: oh i i I, th- <clears throat> I think that this is something that is uh, a phrase that has been around in the neurology field for a long time i don 't know how long I know that it was a phrase that I heard a few times as a resident. Um, I think that phrase has been applied at times with other CNS disorders, and, and maybe I've even seen it once or twice used when describing schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. J- just the idea comes from kindling wood where you start a fire and it blazes and everything else catches on yeah. fire, I think is is the idea with this, this yeah. term. But I don't know that I would have anything more to add to that. I've, I haven't heard of this uh, idea of the changes in oxidative species. The other thing that uh, I start to wonder about is that people who are chronically given ECT for uh, depression, do they have sclerosis of the hippocampus? Do they have some rate of conversion to psychosis? I I haven't seen any of those things Mm -hmm. around. So things that, um, when we talk about maybe a comorbid process, you start wondering more about that when you can separate potentially seizures that may not be temporal lobe that are induced. I I think it just becomes very, very challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that you know, within temporal lobe epilepsy, there's so many different, we know the most common causes, but there are different causes for um, temporal lobe epilepsy and, you know, having um, birth trauma, um, congenital malformations, um, those can also all be um, causes that are associated with temporal lobe ep- epilepsy. So it's a, it's not just you have temporal lobe epilepsy, um, Everyone's going to have the same process, disease process that caused so many that different EEG pathways. Finding.
0: Many different pathways can lead to temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm-hmm. All right, so so let me just uh, make sure that I understand this a little better. Um, I, I think I can track that whenever you have a deformation of the brain, right? I, I think that's pretty commonly held that if you can can dent a neuron, you change the way it fires, right? Yeah. And then the question is whether you have enough of those fibers that can be recruited around that perhaps active neuron that then is able to trigger some sort of, um, full excita- excitation, event, mm-hmm. right? So, so any of the, uh, malformations, any of the traumas, any of these can lead to seizure activity. And, and I th- think in addition to that, you implied that there might be maybe, um, microscopic changes in some of the functional proteins that that may be related to genes or infection that could lead to some sort of change in seizure activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you were going to say something. Oh,
1: well, and so, you know, I think when we say temporal of epilepsy, too, it's important that's what the EEG is telling us, like that region of the brain is responsible. And so it doesn't, so the pathway and feedback loop, you know, on a cellular level we don't necessarily know how that differs or if it does differ um, you know between between types of type temporal of lobe epilepsy TLE, so
0: I, I, that's interesting because um, one of the questions I asked or that I had written down to ask you was are there differences in the types of temporal lobe epilepsy
1: <laughs> <laughs> preemptive preemptive
0: and uh, I'm I, I'm not sure I have any idea what the answer to that might be, so I thought I should yeah. probably stay away from it. Yeah,
1: no, no, no. So there there are. So, I mean, if you ha- think of it, you have like medial temporal lobe epilepsy, um, you can have lesional temporal lobe epilepsy, and the, the lesional comes back to kind of the sclerosis or... Um, Some sort of injury, trauma,
0: mm-hmm. deformation, yep, birth.
1: Exactly. exactly. Um, okay. And so, you know, there are certainly different types, and I think that that factors into... You know, an interesting place to go with like the future research and looking at within these different subtypes are, um, you know, I didn't dive into it enough myself, are there, you know, is there a certain subtype of TLE that's more prone to having psychotic disturbances? We didn't, we didn't yeah. come across that data,
0: mm-hmm. okay. I think the last question I have is this one. And one of the articles, or the, the article that introduced us to force normalization which said, hey, there's, there's some challenges here. There's this camp and this camp. There's the camp that says epilepsy causes the, the, the psychosis. There's the camp that says, no, um, it's when you treat the epilepsy and you get rid of the background epilepsy that you create it. And I think they made the case both can cause it. I yeah. think that's where I was left. But they also said something about a difference between disinhibition types of seizure activity. And hypersynchrony, did you, did you, I didn't see where that went. Did yeah, you?
1: I did not. Okay. I can't, so I can't like, I can't comment that on that either, okay. either. I think, you know, the thing that with forced normalization that, you know, I think you and I discussed a little bit was, um, you know, if somebody is seizure free and becoming more psychotic, I guess is there a benefit to letting them have seizures and what is that threshold you know and finding that middle ground and so I think that you know that's a it's a case by case basis type of thing but it, like
0: if an antipsychotic medication can't hold the person cuz I think that would maybe be a first step yeah there was an interesting algorithm in one of the papers that I looked at in terms of treatment it had I would say somewhere between 3,024 bubbles and 6,018 bubbles. I'm just estimating with those numbers. Um, But I I looked through that, and there were a lot of interesting pathways that I think take into account a number of the principles that we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. It it doesn't make the assumption that every change in an antipsychotic medication is helpful or unhelpful, just that know what happened. I think it, it has the same kind of pathway breakdown for Uh, changes in uh, anti-epileptic medication. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I just thought it was a very thoughtful algorithm that seemed to take into account many aspects of some of the principles we've talked about here.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, at the end of the algorithm, it comes to the conclusion of, you know, optimizing your AED regimen and, um, you know, your antipsychotic and avoiding, you know, polypharmacy. And I think that, again, that comes back to Within mental health care as a whole, and then neurology; these are two fields that you know we have shortages in. So, having longitudinal and good follow-up is difficult for you know the best of patients that have the best you know circumstances as far as you know good insurance, um, good access to those providers, um, and then if you factor in you know patients that have you know, severe mental health, oftentimes their ability to follow up is gonna be limited, and so, you know, they're gonna have a lot of polypharmacy, I think, when they're out in the community because they're gonna get treated when they can, where they can, and so continuity of care becomes a big issue, and I think that that's something that, you know, kind of factors in to mental health as a whole, is how do we improve that continuity of care so that these conditions can be managed you know, more effectively, whether they're singular or certainly when they're mixed.
0: Yeah, I like uh, kind of that most effectively, because I'm left with the impression that much like schizophrenia, where quite often we have a reduction in the voices, um, the the hallucinations, whatever kind they may be, Um, it's the management of somebody's life with that that really helps somebody be successful in the community. And, and I, I think on some level, the idea that we extinguish all seizures might be kind of a fallacy that I've held on to. It, it, it may not only be impractical to think that way, but it might not be helpful to think that way. Mm-hmm. So one, one of the take-homes I had on this podcast. I don't know that I had any more questions. Did we cover the, the content of the articles that you looked up?
1: I think so. I think we covered them to the best of our, our ability. <laughs> this was a very <laughs> tough
0: topic for me, I felt like. Um, Same. I thought you did a great job with it. Jonathan, any take-home thoughts or things that you would add?
2: Um, I was amazed, at, Elliot, your ability to examine all these different articles. I think there were about 10. Um, so just being able to, I think from our last podcast, the importance of Um, treating an evidence-based medicine, I think, as practitioners and trying to fill that gap um, for mental health providers and to those that need that help. So that's
0: all I have. Excellent. Um, I'll go next, and then why don't you do us a team out when you're done. Uh, A couple of things that really crossed my mind that I think are important. First, one of the assumptions I've been working on when I work in this setting is that uh, epileptic events seem to be generating the antipsychotic activity or the, sorry the psychotic activity, the psychosis. That may be an assumption that is very flawed, right? Especially with the force normalization idea. Uh, there may be a place where we're balancing some sort of activity in the brain rather than trying to stop some activity in the brain, potentially. Um, so, so I'm stepping back from some of the thoughts that I've held on to before. Uh, I think the other thing that um, I think that's my major take home. My other take home is Elliot, you really, really did an amazing job. I'm so appreciative that you came back and that you're the student you are. And I sincerely hope that if I end up in the emergency room with a quote hot appy end quote, <laughs> that you're the guy on the other end of the of the of the uh, scalpel.
1: Ah, uh, I appreciate that. No. Um you know for me it's been great to to come back um and be here for another 4 weeks i think um uh, last september when you said during fourth year you know i could come back that was something um you know i made i made plans to do um early on and so i was glad that you know it worked out from a scheduling standpoint cuz i think for me um you know my biggest take home is whatever field you go into, you are going to interface and work with patients that have um, mental health disease. And so understanding the disease process is important, but I think more than that, knowing how to effectively communicate with these, you know, patients and know that, you know. When they're in a hospital setting, for example, that is foreign to them, that might make their disease worse. And your goal isn't to, you know, extinguish the voices. It isn't to, you know, sedate them into oblivion so that they are, you know, able to sit in the bed all day long um, until you can discharge them from the hospital. And I think that, you know, that's an important thing: is knowing that within mental health especially like when you're thinking you have schizophrenia um, and some of the mood disorders that a patient's ability to just manage their voices and you know function in society that's the goal the goal isn't extinguishment and the same goes for you know patients with seizures the goal i think oftentimes in medicine we think it's all or none and that, that set up in my mind i think now is it's flawed. Like the goal is, what allows the patient to have the best life and cope, not lets me feel good because I took them from 100 events to zero type of thing. Recovery. Yeah.
0: Recovery and function in the community. I, I'm going to interrupt and ask one more question before you team out us. Okay. You said that as soon as I let you know that you were welcome back that you started making plans. What was it about being on this rotation you liked so much that you wanted to be back? Because I don't think it was. Uh, I know it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: don't say <sell you> me. <laughs> I, I mean, I might have been don't part sell of yourself. it. Sure. I might have been part of it, but
0: I know it wasn't me, and I want to hear it from you. I, yeah. I'm very interested uh, in hearing it from you.
1: You know, I think that this rotation is a special rotation just because of, you know, the team here at the State Hospital. They. Um, you know, truly value having the medical students um, be a part of the group and interface with the patients and for me being able to go out on the floor um, talk to the patients and um, you know check in and see how they're doing help them with their exercises or going outside um, you know and doing exposure therapy I mean my first my first four weeks um, here uh, last year you know the weather was a little bit nicer than currently so we were able to go play basketball and be outside in the warmer weather but even now um, just being on the unit and going outside when we could with the patients and seeing how they progress even over four weeks and those small changes that was um, really cool for me to witness and um, be a part of and i think that You know, choosing the field that I chose to go into as far as going into surgery, I wanted to make sure that I had one more chance, um, you know, to interact with this subset of patients and really tweak my communication skills so that when I'm out in practice or out in residency, that that's something that I, you know, can continue to improve and improve on and fall back on this experience to, you know, help with these patients when I see them in a more acute setting um, and help make that experience as good as this experience is for them. t
2: T out. T-Mail.